The Old Testament reading this morning is Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets. It's uh, near to the very end of the Old Testament. If you need some help finding it, it's a very short book. We will read Zephaniah chapter 3, and then we will go to our sermon text today, for today, which is Luke 4, 31 through 44. Here in Zephaniah chapter 3, there is a promise concerning the coming Messiah and the work that He would accomplish for His people. Zephaniah chapter 3, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. It would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from you, from your midst, your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame, and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, 
when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let us now go to our sermon text for today, which is Luke 4, 31-44. And here we do indeed see the Lord in the midst of His people. And here indeed we do see the Lord beginning to accomplish this redemption, to set His people free, to comfort them with His love. Luke 4, 31. And He, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And He was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at His teaching, for His word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, that is, Simon Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, And would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Brothers and sisters, it seems evident to me that there is a ditch on both sides of the road as it pertains to the proper interpretation of of this passage that has just been read. On the one side, I think you will find those who read this text and assume that Jesus came for this purpose, to free all who are sick and oppressed so that they might be healthy and prosperous on earth today. You've probably encountered this view. It's very popular in our society. There are many who claim to be Christians who will read stories like the one here in Luke chapter 4 and think that this was Jesus' mission to make people healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in the here and now. And honestly, it is not difficult to see where such a view comes from. A careless and narrow reading of this passage and others like it can give the impression that this was Jesus' mission, to set all people free, that is, to make them healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in the here and now. When I speak of a careless reading, I I mean a reading which focuses on the miracles performed by Jesus, His casting out of demons and healing from diseases, while ignoring the beginning and end of the text, which stresses that Jesus was devoted to preaching the good news of the kingdom of God in the synagogues. In fact, Luke 4.43 says this, 
We hear the words of Christ. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Christ stated the purpose for His coming. His mission was not to make everyone healthy and prosperous now. No, His purpose was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and to establish this kingdom with power. The miracles that Jesus performed must be interpreted in light of this stated purpose. Did Jesus cast out demons? Did He heal people from their physical affliction? Certainly He did. But the question we must ask is, why did He do this? What was the significance of it? What was the meaning? Did He cast out demons and heal because this was His purpose, to make everyone whole and well in the here and now? Or did He perform these miracles for another reason, perhaps as a demonstration of His power and authority? Perhaps you noted that repeated refrain in this passage. Jesus was putting on display His power and authority. He was demonstrating that the kingdom of God had come with power. And I think a careful reading of this text will show us that this was exactly the case. Jesus' stated purpose was to inaugurate God's kingdom, and the miracles performed by Him were a demonstration or sign that the kingdom was here. In fact, in Luke 11.20, a passage we will come to in due time, Jesus explicitly states that this was the meaning of the miracles He performed when He said, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, Jesus interpreted these miracles that He performed. He interpreted these signs for the people. He said, If it is true that I cast these demons out by the finger of God, then it is a demonstration of the fact that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so let us not be careless in our reading of Scripture, brothers and sisters. We learn here that Christ healed and cast out demons. That is true, but we must ask the question, why? What was the significance or meaning? And when I speak of a narrow reading of this passage, I mean a reading of this text and others like it, that ignores other passages of Scripture which make it quite clear that it is not always the will of the Lord to heal and to make His people prosperous in the world in the here and now. To put it very bluntly, a person would have to ignore a great deal of the New Testament and the Old to claim that God's will is to make His people healthy and prosperous on earth now through faith in Christ. I want you to consider just a few things, a few passages of Scripture that make this clear. One, consider this. Christ Himself suffered in the flesh even to the point of death. When he cried out to the Father in the garden to take the cup of suffering from him, he added, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we know that it was the will of the Father that Christ would suffer unto death, for through death he would bring us life. Two, those who have faith in Christ are called to identify with Christ in his suffering. Consider Romans eight sixteen through 17 There Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul says this sort of thing in other places too. 
Uh, the point that he is making is that if we are Christians, then we are to identify with Christ even in His suffering. Yes, Christ suffered in the place of sinners. He suffered to accomplish our redemption. But in the here and now, in this present evil age, Christians ought to expect to suffer with Christ. We are to identify with Him in His suffering. Stated differently, followers, followers of Christ should not expect to be immune from suffering. We should, on the contrary... Expect to suffer with Him. As you can see, this teaching that Christ came to free His people from all suffering runs counter to the very clear teaching of Holy Scripture. Three, I think you should consider that the apostles of Jesus suffered in this life. They suffered even to the point of death. For example, Paul tells us about a thorn in his flesh. And we do not know exactly what this thorn was. But it was certainly an ailment of some kind that bothered him deeply. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8-10, Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that is, about this thorn in his flesh, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, Paul says, I am content with weakness, insults hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Greek word translated as weakness may also be translated as incapacity. Insults means mistreatments. The word hardships is a generic word referring to troubled times. To be persecuted is to be harassed by others. The word Calamities refers to difficult circumstances of any kind. So, you can see that Paul the Apostle here uh, piles up words in order to communicate that he would gladly endure afflictions of any kind, if it was the will of God, to use them to draw him into a closer dependence upon the Lord. For he knew that in his weakness he is really strong. In his weakness he runs to the Lord for strength. And Paul understood that here is where true strength is found. You see, this is the perspective that every Christian ought to have concerning suffering. We should not expect to be immune from it, but rather we should know that in this present evil age, the Lord's will is to oftentimes use suffering to draw us nearer to Christ into a closer dependence upon Him. Four, consider that devout Christians throughout the history of the church have suffered afflictions. Consider also that all will eventually face death. I will not elaborate on this point here. I only mean to draw your attention to the fact that those who claim that Christians should expect to experience health, wealth, and prosperity in the here and now, and if they do not, then it is a sign of God's displeasure with them or some lack of faith. Uh, they have to be not only blind to the clear teaching of Holy Scripture, but also to the reality of church history, for faithful men and women have suffered throughout the, very, throughout the whole history of the church. We must see this clearly. I do sometimes wonder what those who hold to this false teaching will think when they themselves fall ill, and when they themselves face death, where will they run for comfort? I do not know. Five, do not forget that many passages of Scripture instruct the believer concerning the way they are to respond to afflictions. We are told that Christians are to rejoice in their sufferings, knowing that God will bring good from them. As Paul says in Romans 5.3, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, 
and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a beautiful passage this is. Paul said that he rejoiced in his sufferings. Why? Because he knew that these sufferings were used by God to bring about so much good. The Lord grows His people through sufferings. The Lord produces strength in His people as they suffer afflictions and cling to Christ in the midst of it. The Lord gives hope to His people so that they might endure faithfully. Christians also are called to comfort one another in their afflictions, even as they are comforted by God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and following. Here Paul praises the Lord, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, he says, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So, Christians are called to patiently endure while experiencing afflictions. And I would remind you also of that very famous passage in James 5, 10-11. Here James says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so James, who in another place famously says to us that we are to, to rejoice in our afflictions, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, he says. Here, later in his epistle, he reminds us of the sufferings of Job. That righteous man uh, suffered afflictions, but he did so faithfully. He clinged to the Lord through it all. I could pile up many more scripture texts that make it clear that faithful Christians living in this present evil age should not be surprised, 1 Peter 4.12, when they experience trials of various kinds, James 1.2. I think it is enough for now though. The point is this, a careful and broad reading of scripture makes it impossible to think that Christ came to free His people from afflictions and to make us healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in the here and now. Only a very careless and narrow reading of Luke 4 and other passages like it could ever produce such a view. And so let us take care, brothers and sisters, lest we begin to slip into that ditch of misinterpretation. But there is a ditch on the other side of the road that we must be very careful to avoid. Quite honestly, I think we are more prone to fall into this ditch, brothers and sisters, and so let us beware of this one. I would imagine that most who end up in this ditch land there because they overreact against the error just mentioned. And so what is the other error that must be avoided? I think it can be stated in this way. It is the thought that Jesus came to provide for the forgiveness of our sins and to save our souls, but that He is not at all concerned with our physical bodies or our prosperity on earth. That is not true. The Lord does care for us, soul and body. He invites us even to pray, give us this day our daily bread, does He not? Yes, we are to pray it after we pray for the glory of God's name. We're to pray this prayer after we pray for the advancement of His kingdom and that His will would be done on earth. But nevertheless, He does invite us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He is concerned for us in the here and now. He does invite us to bring our needs to Him, our concerns to Him, our desires. 
And certainly He is concerned with our physical bodies and prosperity on earth as it pertains to the life to come. To hold to a view like this, one would have to spiritualize these stories about Jesus healing the sick here in Luke 4 and in other places. They would view these physical healings as mere signs of Jesus' power to heal the soul. Though somewhat true, this view is ultimately incorrect, and I would like to be sure that we avoid this error ourselves, brothers and sisters. Know this for certain, Jesus Christ came to save whole persons, body and soul. Did you hear me? Jesus Christ came to save whole persons, body and soul. He came to set His people free from the tyranny of the devil, body and soul. He came to reverse the effects that man's fall into sin has had on us, body and soul. Christ came to establish a new creation and to do away with the old which has been wrecked by sin. He will bring His people, that is to say, all who have faith in Him, safely into this new creation, body and soul. There in the new heavens and earth, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christ will bring His elect into the new heavens and earth, body and soul. Stated in one more way, Jesus the Messiah came to destroy the devil and his works. He came to overthrow Satan's kingdom and to establish His kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. He came to redeem His people, to rescue them from the kingdom of darkness and to bring them safely and securely into His eternal kingdom of light, body and soul. So then, there is a sense in which it is true that Christ came to give His people health, wealth and prosperity on earth. Did you hear me say it? I did. I think you understand me. I have not slipped into air here. I have not begun to preach the prosperity gospel that needs to be rejected. But there is a sense in which it is true. Christ came to give His people health, wealth, and prosperity on earth. Of course, we need to carefully understand what is meant by all of those words. But I think we must state it nonetheless. He came for this purpose, to bring us safely into the new heavens and earth, body and soul. You see, the trouble with the prosperity gospel, as it is often called, is not its insistence that Christ has earned health, wealth, and prosperity for His people, but rather its insistence that those of faith will have all of these blessings on this earth today, on this earth now. You see, the prosperity preachers have gotten ahead of themselves. That is their error. They have failed to distinguish between life in this present evil age and life in the age to come. When, brothers and sisters, will God wipe away every tear from our eyes? When will death be no more? And when shall there be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore? When will all of these things come to be? The answer is in the life to come. 
after Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. For then, at that time, the former things will have passed away. You may go again to Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And where will these pleasures be enjoyed? Answer, not in this fallen, sin-sick world, but in the world to come. That is to say, in the new heavens and earth, which Christ has earned by His death and resurrection. You see, it is about timing. It is also about location. I think it is important that we speak of all of this in terms of the kingdom of God. For that is how Christ spoke of His mission in the passage that is before us today. He performed these miracles while preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. So we must make a connection between the two things. He performed these miracles while preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. So these two things are related. There is some connection between the casting out of demons and the healing of the the sick and the kingdom of God and its presence on earth then. And so let me ask you, brothers and sisters, when will Christ's kingdom be present with power? When will Christ's kingdom be present with power? Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you have probably heard me say that Christ's kingdom is here now, but not yet in its fullness. You see, we have to have this understanding of the kingdom of God, that it is here now, that it was present with power at Christ's first coming, but that it is not yet here in its fullness. We await its consummation. We know that Christ's kingdom broke into this world in power when Christ came for the first time to accomplish our redemption through His life, death, and resurrection. It was then at His first coming that He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is to say, the kingdom of heaven is near. It is is right at the door. It is coming upon you, was Christ's message. It was then that Christ defeated Satan, Luke 4, 1-15. It was then that He cast him down from heaven, Luke 10, 18. It was then that He bound him so that He could plunder his house, Revelation 20, 1-3, and Matthew 12, 29. It was then, at Christ's first coming, that Christ, having accomplished His work through His humiliation, was exalted to the heavenly throne and sat down there, Hebrews 1, 3. Christ is King now. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to Him. You see, His kingdom is present in the world now, in power. It was brought into this world. It intruded upon this world at His first coming. We must believe this to be true. Nevertheless, nevertheless, if I were to ask you the question, but is the kingdom of God here in fullness? You would have to say, no. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it is not yet consummated. And when will the kingdom of heaven be here in full? When will it come in its fullness, in all of its power, in all of its glory? Answer, when Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. This is what 1 Corinthians 15.24 says. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, Then comes the end, when Christ delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. He is reigning now. He is reigning now. His kingdom is here now with power. And He must reign until He puts all of His enemies under His feet. You see, there is something progressive about the establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom. The kingdom broke into the world with power when Christ came for the first time. The kingdom will grow and expand until Christ returns. 
And when He returns, the kingdom will be brought to its consummation, to its end, to its fullness. Then there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more death. And then Satan will be fully and finally judged and His kingdom cast out of this world completely. Jesus spoke about the progressive expansion of His kingdom when He said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and all the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And so with this imagery, Christ described what the kingdom of God is like. It began small when He first came, and as He commissioned His disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and progressively it has grown so that the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth, we being a a testament to the fact that it has come to the ends of the earth, and it will continue to grow until the Lord returns, until it is here in its fullness, you see. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And so, we must have this understanding that the kingdom is present with power. It has been since Christ's first coming, but we await its consummation. We await its consummation. So, what does all of this kingdom talk have to do with our passage? Everything, I think. We have to understand that this passage is all about the presence of the kingdom of Christ and its power. Notice that our text begins with the mention of Jesus' preaching. Luke 4.31 says, And He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and He was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at His teaching, for His word possessed authority. By the way, Jesus was driven out of Nazareth, his hometown, so He went to Capernaum and had that as a kind of base of operations for a time. And there is where He performed many of His miracles. Uh, And there is where He began to preach in the synagogues, or these little uh, churches, if you will. And the people of God heard Him and knew that His Word possessed a very special kind of authority. And what was Jesus' preaching about? Again, we are told in verse 43, "...but He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God." to the other towns as well, for I was sent for, for this purpose. And so he began to spread out from Capernaum, and he began to preach in other towns as well. What was he preaching about? He was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He expressly says that he was sent for this purpose. Christ came to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God was near, and he came to inaugurate that kingdom through his victory over Satan, sin, and death. The miracles performed by Jesus in this passage, the casting out of demon, a demon in verses 33 through 37, the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law in verses 38 through 39, and the report that he healed many and cast demons out of many in verses 40 through 41, they are all to be viewed as a demonstration of Jesus' power and authority and as a sign that His kingdom was at hand. These miracles also demonstrate the power and authority that Christ has to overthrow the devil and to overturn all of His works. That's what this passage is about. Here we are given a glimpse, a little taste of what Christ's kingdom is all about. Here we are given a little glimpse, a little taste of the power and authority that Jesus has. He defeated the devil there in the desert when He was tempted, remember. He resisted that temptation three times. And then He began His public ministry. And I warned you about this. Yes, we are going to see the full and final defeat of the evil one at the cross of Christ, but we must see that He 
was defeating the evil one throughout his ministry. And, and here it is. Here it is put on display. He's casting out demons and he is healing the sick. He is demonstrating that he has this power and authority over the evil one. He is demonstrating what he will do in his kingdom. He will take the works of the devil and turn them on their head. He will overturn them. He will renew this creation and cast out every evil and vile thing that was brought in by man's fall into sin through the temptation of the evil one. That Jesus has power over Satan and Satan's kingdom is clearly demonstrated by his casting out of demons. And by the way, demons are angels who fell along with Satan, the prince of the demons. And notice what the demons said when they were cast out by Jesus. Isn't this interesting? Uh, The demons spoke truth here in this passage. I do not think we are to uh, glean our understanding of the truth from Demons. That is why Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak further. But nevertheless, it is true. They, they, they did speak truth in these moments. The demon who was cast out of the man in the synagogue said, Ha! That is the Greek word um, uh, which communicates emotion or surprise or even anger. He said, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What an, an amazing thing. To, to be heard by those who were present there. This demon knew who Jesus was. He knew that He was God incarnate and that He had come ultimately to destroy Him and them. In verse 41 we read, And demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. So these demons that were being cast out by Jesus, by the word of His power, uh, displayed a degree of understanding concerning who He was. They knew that He was the Son of God incarnate. They knew He was the promised Messiah. They knew also what He had come to do. They knew that He had come to overthrow them. To overthrow them, Satan, His kingdom, and to establish His eternal kingdom of light. Verse 36 says that the people were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word for with authority and power? Are you hearing kingdom language throughout this whole passage? We hear about the preaching of the kingdom at the beginning and end, but there's kingdom language throughout it. The people notice that with authority and power, He commanded the unclean spirits and they came out. Yes, that is exactly what this was. A demonstration of Jesus' authority and power. He has authority and power over Satan, His minions, and His kingdom. And He demonstrated that authority by casting demons out by His Word. And what about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law? Here Christ demonstrates that He has the power to eradicate disease. This does not mean that He has eradicated sickness from the world now, nor does it mean that His people will never be ill, or that it will always be His will to heal Now, to think this would be to read too much into the text, and to hold to a view like this would require us to ignore many other passages of Scripture, as has already been demonstrated. But the point is this. Christ has power and authority over illness. He can drive it out. It may be His will to drive it out of us in the here and now, when we come to Him in prayer, just as He did with the mother-in-law of Peter, And so we are not wrong to pray for healing. But when we bring these desires of ours to the Father through the Son, 
and by the Spirit, we ought to follow the example of our Lord and say, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Does Christ possess the authority and power to eradicate illness and even death itself? He Himself rose from the dead, did He not? Demonstrating His power even over the grave. Does He possess authority and power to eradicate illness and even death itself? The answer is yes. And how did He get this power? How did He get it? Through His victory over Satan and over Satan's kingdom. And when will He purge this earth of Satan, His demons, all sickness, suffering, and death itself? When will He do it? On the last day, when He will judge and make all things new. Then He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things will have passed away. Thanks be to God for the victory that Christ has won. Brothers and sisters, I've preached rather strongly against the so-called prosperity gospel this morning. This idea that Christ came to make us healthy, wealthy, and prosperous now, and that illness, poverty, and afflictions are always the result of a lack of faith or of God's displeasure, is so very wrong and it is so very damaging. This false teaching, if believed, will isolate people from God, because all suffering will be perceived as a sign of God's displeasure. But we know that God is sovereign even over our suffering, and that He is near to His people in the midst of suffering. He promises to work all things for good for those in Christ, Romans 8.28. And He invites His people to draw near to Him in their suffering. In fact, the Lord often uses afflictions to draw us nearer to God and to teach us to depend more on Him and less on ourselves. Indeed, the Scriptures remind us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with us because He, the eternal Son of God, suffered in the flesh. He knows what it is to suffer affliction. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to fear, to hunger, to thirst. All of these things He experienced in the flesh so that He might redeem us and so that He might sympathize with us in our weakness. This prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, alienates people from God and from Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, does it not? For it teaches that there must be some displeasure in God with you or some lack of faith in you because you are experienced this. It is not true. And this false teaching will also drive people from one another. Those who believe that, are, that afflictions are the result of a lack of faith or a sign of God's displeasure, will not be able to comfort their brethren in the midst of their afflictions, but will be like Job's bad counselors who could only demand that he repent, for surely, they assumed, the suffering he experienced could only be the result of some personal sin. But Job did not suffer because of personal sin. He suffered because it was the will of the Lord to permit it and to use it for good. God had some purpose in it that no one could see. Brothers and sisters, I doubt that any here will be tempted to buy into this distortion of the gospel, which is no gospel at all. But I would assume that many of us do wrestle inwardly when we see God's people suffer. Isn't that true of us? Why, O oh Lord, would you allow this, we ask? 
And while we may never have all the answers to our specific questions, we do know that even our sufferings are ordained by God. That He is with us in the midst of it to work through it for our good and that He will keep us to bring us safely into our eternal inheritance where Satan's sin, sickness, and death will be no more. Jesus demonstrated His power over Satan's sin, sickness, and death at His first coming so that His people might know for certain that He has the power and authority to save us from these things and to bring us safely into the new heavens and earth where these evils that bring us sorrow now will be abolished forever. Jesus did not come to save your soul only, brothers and sisters. He came to save you body and soul. The Son of God took to Himself a true human body and a reasonable soul, a true human soul, so that He might redeem us body and soul through this victory He has won. We speak often of the salvation of the soul. Yes, through faith in Christ your sins have been forgiven and your soul is renewed. In Christ you have a new mind, a new heart or affections, and a new will. You are being sanctified in the soul even now, but you will be perfected in the soul at the consummation. Never will you sin again when Christ returns to make all things new. But do not forget about the salvation of your body. When Christ returns, your body will be raised imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15.42 It will be glorified and empowered forever by the Holy Spirit. Never again will the body suffer sickness or pain. Never will it deteriorate. Never will it die. Do not forget about the body, brothers and sisters. Christ came to save you, body and soul. In this life, we suffer bodily afflictions for the refinement of the soul. When Christ returns, these former things will pass away. Until then, brothers and sisters, we must patiently and faithfully endure. And when I say faithfully, I do not only mean that we are to be faithful and constant, but faithful, that is to say, full of faith. We are to patiently and faithfully endure. We must patiently and faithfully endure in the mind, knowing that God loves us in Christ Jesus and that He works all things for the good of His children. And so I might ask you, brothers and sisters, is your mind strong? Is it filled with God's truth? Or have you allowed lies to creep in, the evil one to speak to you? We must have strong minds, full of faith. We must patiently and faithfully endure with our affections. And by this I mean we must draw near to God and not run from Him when calamity strikes. We must be like Paul in this regard, who boasted in his weakness so that the power of Christ would rest upon him. For the sake of Christ, he was content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For he knew that it was when he was weak that he was strong. When Paul suffered, he ran to God through faith in Christ, and he relied all the more on his grace. And so I ask you, is your heart strong? Is your heart filled with love for God and Christ? Is your heart filled with the assurance of his love for you, even when calamity strikes? And when we suffer afflictions, we must patiently and faithfully endure with our wills. By this I mean, we must choose to obey Christ and not sin against Him in thought, word, or deed. And so I might ask you, is your resolve to follow Christ in this world strong? Are you resolved to follow Him in times of plenty and in times of want, in good times and in bad times? We must have the will to follow hard after Christ. 
And lastly, I say to you, to live this way now, in body and soul, requires faith in Christ. We must walk by faith and not by sight. If you have faith in Christ, you know that He has redeemed you body and soul. And it is this faith in Christ that produces within us peace, endurance, character, and hope. You may see Romans 5, 1-5 about that. In Christ we have peace. In Christ we have hope. In Christ we find comfort. I'd like to conclude now with a reading of Heidelberg Catechism Question 1. It's a beautiful statement of gospel truth that I will sometimes use to comfort those in times of affliction. I shared it with you earlier this week, and so I conclude with this beautiful question and answer even now. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. May the Lord give us this comfort, brothers and sisters. Let us bow together for prayer. Great God in heaven, I pray that you would increase our faith. We assemble in this place, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, uh, to hear the Word of God read and proclaimed. We hear the Gospel proclaimed. Father, I pray that we would believe it truly. I pray that we would have this firm conviction that we are living for the life to come. I pray that we would believe truly that Christ came to deliver us from the tyranny of the devil and to bring us safely home into the new heavens and new earth, body and soul. May we walk by faith and not by sight. Give us this ability, O Lord. I pray that you would purify us in the mind, in the heart, in the will. I pray that you would enable us to honor you even with our bodies. Bring us safely home, O God, for your glory and for Christ's sake. In his name we pray. Amen.